Hello and welcome to Weird Wild World, a weekly series that takes a look at the power of nature. From natural disasters to rare and strange phenomena and everything in between, we will take a look at the wonder and weirdness of our planet. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about Yellowstone National Park, highly requested by many of you. First, we'll talk a bit about what it is and the history behind Yellowstone, then get into why the dormant volcano there probably won't erupt for some time, and finish off by explaining what might happen if it does. So let's get into it. Yellowstone National Park is in fact a supervolcano. The term supervolcano implies an eruption of magnitude eight on the volcano explosivity index, indicating an eruption of more than 1000 cubic kilometers of magma. Yellowstone has had at least three such eruptions. The three eruptions 2.1 million years ago, 1.2 million years ago, and 640,000 years ago were about 6,700 and 2,500 times larger than the May 18, 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens in Washington state. When you're walking around the park, you might not see a triangular mountain with lava flowing down it, like what you'd expect a volcano to look like, but a large portion of this 2 million plus acre park, larger than the states of Delaware and Rhode Island combined, is a volcano. The bubbling geysers and hot springs, according to the park's website, are an indication of the churning activity below the surface. Sources also state, volcanic activity began in the Yellowstone National Park region a little more than about 2 million years ago. Molten rock rises from deep within the earth produced three cataclysmic eruptions more powerful than any in the world's recorded history. The first caldera forming eruption occurred about 2.1 million years ago. The eruptive blast removes so much magma from its subsurface storage reservoir that the ground above it collapsed into the magma chamber and left a gigantic depression in the ground. Later, activity shifted to a smaller region within the Island Park area of Eastern Idaho, just Southwest of Yellowstone National Park and produced another large caldera forming eruption 1.3 million years ago. Subsequent activity has been focused within the area of the National Park and another huge eruption 640,000 years ago formed the Yellowstone Caldera as we now see it. The last time the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted was 640,000 years ago. The Yellowstone eruption area collapsed upon itself creating a sunken giant crater or caldera 1500 square miles in area. The magmatic heat powering that eruption and two others still powers the park's famous geysers, hot springs, and mud pots. For reference, the entire island of Krakatoa has a radius of one mile. Even in 416 AD, when there was a caldera collapse and the island was larger, the caldera was only four miles wide. Compared to the 1500 square miles of Yellowstone, that's absolutely nothing in comparison. Sometimes when I'm discussing bad businesses that make billions of dollars, it's hard to fathom how much money that is and comprehend numbers that large. Today, I'm getting that feeling from the size of Yellowstone. I'm just, just, I'm struggling to understand the massive size of this thing. Since this caldera forming eruption 640,000 plus years ago, there's been about 80 relatively non-explosive eruptions since. 
27 of these were rhyolite lava flows in the caldera, 13 were rhyolite lava flows outside the caldera, and 40 were from basalt vents outside the caldera. Rhyolitic lavas for reference are viscous and tend to form thick blocky lava flows or steep-sided piles of lava called lava domes. Rhyolite magmas tend to erupt explosively, commonly also producing abundant ash and pumice. The most recent lava eruption occurred at Yellowstone 70,000 years ago. However, geyser eruptions have definitely happened since then. One in 2013 spouted scalding water 200 to 300 feet in the air for close to nine minutes. So you know, even though this may not be nearly as risky as White Island was, you should still be cautious. The geyser is so powerful, it has been known to eject boulders during an eruption. This particular geyser called Steamboat is also said to be more fickle than the famous Old Faithful because it doesn't have the same structure where Old Faithful erupts every time the reservoir fills. Now that we know just a bit about this park's history and the sheer magnitude of the volcano there, let's get into some of the more recent activity at Yellowstone and what the scientists may be observing there and how they know that it won't erupt for a while. The Yellowstone Volcano Observatory or YVO is a consortium of nine state and federal agencies who provide timely monitoring and hazard assessment of volcanic, hydrothermal, and earthquake activity in the Yellowstone Plateau region. The USGS arm of YVO is also responsible for monitoring and reporting on volcanic activity in the Intermountain West United States. In other words, Yellowstone is really carefully monitored because you just know from the sheer size alone that if it erupts, we're all done for, but more on that in a moment. There's been some recent studies from YVO published on the USGS website with this one about the plumbing systems of the Steamboat Geyser and Cistern Spring being released the day before I actually wrote this script, as their article explains. With all eyes on the spectacular eruptions of the Steamboat Geyser, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that around 300 feet away, Cistern Spring gradually drains a few hours after the amazing water show at Steamboat. In the 24 hours after Steamboat water eruption, Cistern Spring empties only to begin refilling once more and recovering its normal water level within a few days. This pattern has persisted since the 1960s and continues in Steamboat's current active phase, which began in March, 2018. It is actually not uncommon for separate hydrothermal features to have some sort of relation in time. A good example is Beehive Geyser near Old Faithful in the Upper Geyser Basin. Spectacular beehive eruptions always occur a few minutes after activity at a smaller adjacent indicator vent. These types of connections are thought to be a reason for the regularity of some eruptions as the hydrothermal features may compete with each other for water and heat resources in the subsurface. In most cases, however, features that seem to be linked like beehive geyser and to the beehive indicator are immediately adjacent to one another, often within 10 feet. In contrast, steamboat geyser and cistern spring have a much larger separation, about 330 feet. There's been some incredible mapping of both of these geysers, which shows how Steamboat and Cistern are likely connected through a network of cracks instead of open pipes like Old Faithful. Schematic models of Old Faithful are on the website and monthly updates from the Volcano Hazard Program are available as well. If you click under monitored, you can also see what's going on in a number of different categories, such as earthquakes, deformation, hydrology, hydrothermo, and volcanic gases. Under earthquakes, it reads, since 1973, there have been over 48,000 earthquakes located in the Yellowstone region. 
Over 99% of those earthquakes are magnitude two or below and are not felt by anyone. Earthquake swarms, earthquakes that cluster in time and space, account for about 50% of the total seismic activity in Yellowstone and can occur anywhere in the Yellowstone region. But they are most common in the east-west band between Hegbin Lake and Norris Geyser Basin. Most swarms are small, containing 10 to 20 earthquakes and short, lasting for one to two days. However, large swarms that can contain thousands of earthquakes and last for months do occur on occasion. The most recent swarms as of writing this have been in 2017. There's also been much larger earthquakes in the past, like the 7.3 magnitude in 1959, known as the Hebgen Lake earthquake. This is the largest earthquake to occur in historical times in the Intermountain West. It was responsible for 28 deaths and seriously impacted the hydrothermal systems of the park, including the Old Faithful Geyser. It also triggered a massive landslide in Madison Canyon, causing 50 million cubic yards of rock to fall to the canyon floor, damming the Madison River and creating Earthquake Lake. Major damage was sustained by a ton of structures in West Yellowstone as well. Thankfully, serious seismic monitoring began in earnest during the early 1970s. It discontinued briefly due to budget cuts. I don't really know who the heck would cut the budget for earthquake monitoring of all things, but okay. But anyway, it restarted again in 1984 and has been operated by the University of Utah Seismograph Stations ever since. It's been updated quite frequently over the years and is now one of the most modern volcano monitoring networks in the world. And as it should be, honestly, given the size of Yellowstone and the amount of earthquakes, I'd be pretty surprised if people weren't doing anything to you know, watch it and monitor it and try and understand what it's doing. Now, another category being monitored aside from earthquakes is deformation. If you hover over the word on the USGS website, they'll tell you that means changes in the surface of a volcano due to magma moving beneath the surface. Again, this would be an incredibly massively important thing to check up on when you have a famous and highly visited area like Yellowstone National Park. The University Navstar Consortium is a community of scientists, educators, and professionals that operate the geodetic facility for the advancement of geoscience on behalf of NASA. The instruments that monitor the deformation in the parks are maintained by them, and according to USGS, within Yellowstone National Park, Univisio operates more than a dozen continuous global positioning system stations, five borehole strain meter and tilt meter stations, and a lake level monitoring system on Yellowstone Lake. The greater number of GPS stations coupled with the comparatively poor performance of tilt meter and strain meter data over time periods longer than several days due to instrument drift make GPS the most important ground-based deformation monitoring method at Yellowstone. INSAR is a specific technique used for mapping ground deformation as well. This works by collecting radar images of the Earth's surface and comparing two radar images next to one another. Any movement of the ground surface towards or away from the satellite can be measured. These specific pictures are called interferograms. INSAR isn't effective when the ground is covered in snow though, so data collected in warmer months is actually usable. As for hydrologic data, the USGS provides real-time streamflow data from the major rivers draining Yellowstone as well. Their site states, water samples are collected from major rivers in Yellowstone National Park on a regular basis. Measurements of the chloride concentrations provide an estimate of the total heat discharge from the Yellowstone volcanic system. 
changes in the chloride concentrations over time help scientists to understand how heat released from the subsurface relates to magmatic and tectonic activity. There's 15 areas where you can look at the gauge stations if it interests you, but needless to say, Yellowstone is heavily monitored. Surprises happen, I'm sure those of you that have seen any of my other volcano episodes know that, but even the tiniest warning signs are being watched here. There's about 150 lakes, 278 streams, 45 waterfalls, and thousands of small wetland areas all across Yellowstone. While many of the park's surface water features appear to be disconnected from the hydrothermal features like the Grand Prismatic Spring or Steamboat Geyser, researchers continue to identify new linkages between the two systems. For example, Yellowstone Lake may seem continuous at the surface, but its dynamic lake bottom is dotted by underwater hot springs and hydrothermal vents. The composition of the lake is a mixture of meteoric snow and rainfall water and a small but significant fraction of thermal water heated by the underwater volcanic system. Determining the relative contribution of meteoric and deeper thermal waters is a challenging task and the subject of ongoing research. The interplay of meteoric and thermal waters in the lake creates an extremely complex water system that researchers are currently working to better understand. In a similar vein to hydrologic data, there's also hydrothermal, which relates to steam. Heat and volcanic gases rise from the Yellowstone magma storage region and warm the salty water that occupies fractured rocks above it. That brine in turn transfers its heat to overlying fresh groundwater, which is recharged by rainfall and snowmelt from the surface. This superheated water can flash to steam, propelling both steam and hot water to the surface as a geyser. The hot water can also create mud pots, hot springs, and steam vents. It's an important aspect to know if temperature changes are occurring when you're monitoring a volcano this massive. Temperature measurements recorded at 30 to 60 second intervals are done with thermal sensors in geyser runoff channels. If temperatures exceed a baseline, then it probably means a geyser eruption is about to take place. The monitoring system gathers thermal infrared imagery from helicopters and satellite images as well. Although hydrothermal features aren't hot enough to emit visible light, they do emit thermal infrared light that can be detected by specific sensors. So not only do we have GPS stations, helicopters, radar images, and all that good stuff involved to be sure that Yellowstone is safe and checking on the current conditions, but we've got one last important aspect, the volcanic gases. Studying the gas is a bit more complicated, primarily because gas components are found in more than one source. For example, helium and carbon dioxide are emitted by magma at all volcanoes, but can also be released from rocks in the crust under the influence of heat. One method to tease out the difference is to determine the isotropic composition of some gas components, which can tell the story about gas origins. Most of the gas emitted from Yellowstone's thermal features is steam. The remaining gas is primarily carbon dioxide, usually 90% or more, with some additions like helium, hydrogen sulfide, nitrogen, oxygen, methane, ammonia, and other gases. If the qualities of these gases change, then scientists would know it after collecting samples and hopefully be able to determine what the hell might be going underground to warrant such a change. Gas samples are collected pretty sporadically once a year or so, but there's plans to install Yellowstone's year-round gas sensors at Norris. But what does this data tell us? Is Yellowstone due for an eruption? Well, thankfully, no. According to the USGS, the same source that's published most of this information and data so far, they say, Yellowstone is not overdue for an eruption. Volcanoes do not work in predictable ways and their eruptions do not follow predictable schedules. 
Even so, the math doesn't work out for the volcano to be overdue for an eruption. In terms of large explosions, Yellowstone has experienced three at 2.08, 1.3, and 0.631 million years ago. This comes out to an average of about 725,000 years between eruptions. That being the case, there is still about 100,000 years to go, but this is based on the average of just two numbers, which is meaningless. Most volcanic systems that do have a super eruption do not have them multiple times. When super eruptions do occur more than once in a volcanic system, they are not evenly spaced in time. Although another catastrophic eruption at Yellowstone is possible, scientists are not convinced that one will ever happen. The rhyolite magma chamber beneath Yellowstone is only five to 15% molten. The rest is solidified, but still hot. So it is unclear if there's even enough magma beneath the caldera to feed an eruption. If Yellowstone does erupt again, it need not be a large eruption. The most recent volcanic eruption at Yellowstone was a lava flow that occurred 70,000 years ago. So could Yellowstone erupt again? Absolutely. But will it happen in our lifetime or even a few generations from now? It's extremely unlikely. However, today we're dealing with hypotheticals. So let's pretend for a moment that we're basically in a post-apocalyptic movie. What would happen if Yellowstone did erupt? If another catastrophic caldera forming Yellowstone eruption occurred, it would literally alter global weather patterns. Agricultural productions for years, possibly even decades would be extremely affected. The amount of ash and sulfur that would be injected into the atmosphere would be absolutely incredible. We've talked about how Krakatoa changed temperature because of it. Imagine the devastating effect Yellowstone could have. A team of scientists published an article about what this super eruption might look like back in 2014. This will be in my sources below if you're interested in that, of course. They state that after some calculations, if Yellowstone were to erupt, the volcano would be capable of burying surrounding states in at least three feet of volcanic ash. Other states would probably get a few inches at least, and the coastlines would get the least of it. Not that that's negligible either. Their paper states, North America's highest population density lies along its coastlines. Deposit thickness on the coast from nearly all simulations is millimeters to a few centimeters. Thicknesses of this magnitude seem small, but their effects are far from negligible. A few millimeters of ash can reduce traction on roads and runways, short out electrical transformers, and cause respiratory problems. Ashfall thickness of centimeters throughout the American Midwest could disrupt livestock and crop production, especially during critical times in the growing season. Thick deposits could threaten building integrity and obstruct sewer and water lines. Electronic communications and air transportation would likely be shut down throughout North America. There would also be major climate effects. Emission of sulfur aerosols during the 1991 Pinatubo eruption produced global cooling by an average of one degree Celsius for a few years. While the 50 cubed kilometer Tambora eruption of 1815 cooled the planet enough to produce the famed year without a summer in 1816, during which snow fell in June in Eastern North America and crop failure led to the worst famine of the 19th century. Other indirect effects include wind reworking of tephra into migrating dunes that bury roads and structures or increased sediment load to streams that exacerbates flooding and impedes river traffic. Basically, North America would be super screwed. The temperature would probably be a few degrees colder for at least a few years globally. A global volcanic winter could be triggered. The ash could pollute water supplies. Anyone nearby would be dead in a fiery doomsday sort of way. Humankind would be devastated. 
Not wiped out entirely, but between global cooling, crops destroyed, and even acid rain, we certainly wouldn't be doing so great, especially for those in North America. Though it might be sort of hard to wrap your brain around all of this, humans are honestly a newer species when you compare how long we've been around in comparison to how old the earth is. The chance of Yellowstone erupting in any given year is actually lower than the chance that we'll get hit by a civilian destroying asteroid. So though we probably don't have to worry about Yellowstone anytime soon, the earth has been kind of thriving without us for a very long time. Kind of makes humankind seem like we're a virus given what we do to the earth and all of that. But with that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Weird Wild World. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you wanna connect with me outside of these episodes, make sure to click my Linktree link in the description box so that you'll find all my links to all my social media and various other projects that I'm working on. Again, thank you all so much for making it to another episode of Weird Wild World. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll see you in the next one. Bye. 